Welcome to our newest episode of The Crawl. Today, the guys and I, we all sat down with a good friend of mine, Sean Rourke, who is a visualization editor, also known as a previs editor over at the third floor. That means he does, uh, he'll go into much more depth on this, but he works in sort of the VFX and pre-production planning realm of the storytelling aspect of bigger budget filmmaking. He's got a great story. He started out in trailers and he did a lot of VFX editing and then has done, has worked his way into this position at the third floor. Sean is also really cool because like, you'll hear it in the interview, but he has this voice that is just what you want to hear when you hear a bedtime story. So I guess without further ado, here's Sean Rourke. Welcome to The Crawl. Hey, I'm Matt. I'm Chad. I'm Tyler. We're Radio Silence. I'm Tom, and this is The Crawl. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode. Uh, we're talking to Sean Rourke today, who is a previs editor. Uh, I worked with him at a company called The Third Floor. Um, Sean, I think maybe for our listeners, one of the best places to start is maybe discussing what exactly a previs editor is and what, what previs is in general. Okay. Uh, this actually is going to be great practice for me because I'm still trying to perfect a way to explain this to my extended family when right. they ask me <laughs> what it is that I do right. when I see them. So uh, so what Previs is, is it is uh, something that is... Um, we should apologize for the helicopters. Yeah, we, really should. Oh, yes. we should do that first. For the hostage situation a few blocks away. Which so. sounds like a joke, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to talking about previs. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. So previs is essentially like moving storyboards. Uh, so what we do is, um, I, I say we, I'm, I'm going to talk about we because I, the, the company that I work for, that you work for as well, the third floor, uh, is a visualization company uh, that does is known for doing previs, uh, but we also do... Uh, things like post-viz, tech-viz, and I can talk about those if you want as well. But, I definitely uh, want to move into those later, yeah, because they're really interesting. Um, but uh, but previs is sort of the sort of the uh, the one that we're known for the most. And it, previs is essentially when a a large movie uh, that uh, has a really big budget behind it and has um, like say for example the Avengers, uh, they come to us and they're like, okay, we've got. Uh, the ending of our movie is uh, about a half an hour long. It's one major battle that takes place in New York City with aliens and superheroes. Spoiler and, alert, guys. Uh, <laughs> sorry. They avenge <laughs> a bunch of shit. There's a lot of avenging happening. And, uh, you know, the studio comes to us, and uh, due to the expense of uh, this scene, this very long scene, it's going to cost millions and millions of dollars, we don't want to just show up on the day and wing it. So what they have us do is uh, the director comes and sits with us and sort of goes over sort of what he envisions as, you know, these are the beats, uh, this is the stuff that has to come across, here are the script pages, and then we take that and start basically generating 
computer graphics, uh, like uh, probably like Xbox 360 level uh, graphics versions of all of the scenes. That is like down to the camera angles, uh, you know, what lenses are being used, uh, whether the camera is on sticks, handheld, uh, on some sort of very expensive dolly or wire system or drone or anything like that. And then we animate all of the characters having their big fight scenes with all the laser blasts and visual effects and sky sleds flying through and uh, basically do round after round after round of iteration on, uh, you know, tightening that scene, uh, you know, or multiple scenes, making that half an hour work. And then when we finally kind of get it locked in, then we can export that sequence as just a, a quick time that, you know, anybody can play on their computer. And it is basically a visual roadmap of how the entire thing is going to go with sound effects and uh, music and uh, dialogue either recorded or in subtitles down at the bottom so that the producers can hand that to all of the department heads on the movie. So everyone from, uh, you know, the uh, camera department to visual effects to costuming, set design, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the ADs, UPMs, everybody can see ex- everything that is entailed in the scene in order to prep for it, budget for it, you know, cast for it, everything. Uh, and uh, they, you know, compared to how much money they spend making those enormous parts of the movie, they pay us, you know, a small fraction of that in order to, Mm -hmm. you know, work in that sandbox to get it looking the way that they want. And so then ultimately what tends to happen is that they go out and they shoot exactly the previs as it was, you know, designed. And uh, although that saves them a lot of money, it, uh, I, I, I feel bad sometimes for actual picture editors because they're pretty much just given a blueprint saying, here's how it's going to look. Here's all the footage that we right. shot to make it look exactly this way. Sure, yeah. And it's like not, so there aren't like five minutes of extra footage on either end of the cut exactly. for the editor to yeah. massage. It's like you, it's designed specifically with economy in mind. So right. Right. it's once you have what's in the previs, you call cut and you move on. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you're trying to make your day with you know, all of those people and big stars and, you know, visual effects plates to shoot and stuff like that. But it's, uh, you know, every every project is different. So, uh, like, for example, um, uh, one of the projects that I'm on right now, the editor has been involved since the very beginning. And so he's had a very big say in how the scene is working and what needs Wait, to change. Have you been and, communicating with the editor? Uh, well, I mean, in ter- uh, like face to face, no, but, sure, but, but like. so like I'll edit. So what, what I do is I'm previs editor. So I get all of the shots that the artists are, uh, are, are making. And then I cut them together with, uh, and add sound effects and music and stuff like that. But mainly, uh, cut it together in a way that, you know, shows continuity of action and, you know, storytelling and all that sort of thing. So we send off a an edit pretty regularly. We'll get copious notes back uh, 
on everything from, you know, the we need for the characters to be doing this one important thing to the plot all the way down to, hey, can we get some more rim lighting on this particular monster in this particular shot? So, sure. so how, how involved are the other departments in the previous stage? Because, I mean, even outside of editing, you know, you're talking about camera angles and there's so much design sounds like goes into creating that story in a previous space in a way that makes it a successful blueprint to go and shoot off of. So how involved are the other departments in the conversation with you guys when you're designing those sequences or is it just the director? Um, so it actually is different on every movie. Uh, a lot of the times it's just the director and usually a producer or a couple of producers, whoever sort of the core creative team of the project is. Oddly enough, just in my experience over the last couple of years, uh, they don't tend to invite the writers to those meetings as much. Uh, it's more along the lines of they've got the script already. And since we're basically figuring out the big action beats, it's usually, you know, the directors, the producers, uh, they sort of guide it. And then once they see something that they like, they'll hand it back to the writer and say, you know, can you work this into the script or can you come up with some dialogue for these particular moments? Um, but we'll have, for example, uh, the concept art team. So like the art department, a lot of times will be uh, giving us the concept artwork that they originally did so that we can see sort of what the visual look of the project is supposed to be. And there are times where, uh, you know, we'll be in the middle of uh, figuring out a scene and the director will go to the concept art team and say, I'm thinking green and rain and uh, spines. And the concept artist will come up with some amazing piece of concept art over the course of a day or two that gets sent to us. And then suddenly, you know, with the director's buy off, it's like, Oh, okay. Visually we can see this is what right. he's going for. And then that can, you know, help to finish something off. The DP actually, uh, is a lot of times part of the conversation where, uh, like I had an experience just on, uh, the project that I was working on, uh, the last couple of months, um, where we were doing something called virtual camera, which is, uh, if you've seen any of the behind the scenes on Avatar, that's like probably the closest thing I can point you to. But what it is essentially is that uh, we'll have, uh, we'll take a scene and uh, instead of going through and methodically like uh, planning out every single shot, animating it and then rendering it by itself, our animators will create essentially they'll animate out the entire scene as just one big file. And then the, uh, we go into a stage that we have that's set up with it's our motion capture stage. So it has all of the motion capture sensors and cameras and that sort of thing. And the director and, or the DP will get a handset that is a monitor and any direction that they move that monitor, they can see inside of their scene. Right. And so all of the uh, all of the animation, all of the actors, the animated characters have already been animated to move around the scene and do the stuff that's that's taking place in the scene. So that when our operator hits play, the scene plays out. 
the director or the DP gets to actually make their camera moves in, in a virtual space. space. It's crazy. And it's extremely inexpensive to do, and it allows them to, instead of copiously pre-planning every single shot, they can organically find the interesting shots. Right, which is like one of the odd creative challenges of something, I mean, as amazing and as useful as Previs is, when you have something that's so designed... How do you leave room for the accidents that are like part of everything I think great that we've ever worked on and <laughs> the stuff that we've seen? Like you always show up and you get something that you didn't plan on getting because the circumstances and the variables are just not something that you can ever f- have a full grasp of. Absolutely. Um, that's an interesting, I, I guess, sort of challenge. How do you leave space for the process to have this kind of organic feel to it? And obviously it sounds like the te- there's technology out there now that allows for like, a human touch in a world that is fully, you know, fully virtual. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, uh, it's the kind of thing that um, depends on sort of the director and how he likes to do things. Like there, are, specifically, there are directors who come from usually from a more indie background, and they're like, no, I need to, I need to be in the space. I need to work with the actors. I need to find the scene there. And then there are the guys who a lot of times come from the commercial world uh, who are very much about like, nope, we're planning out every single thing and we're going to overshoot the hell out of this uh, from every single conceivable angle, all pre-planned. And so that tends to come out in the process by which the previs is created there sometimes we're sitting in a room with the director every day uh other times we never meet the director in person uh they're so busy prepping the film uh that and they're often atlanta or london or someplace like that and so we you know get a phone call with them once a month and otherwise we're working through the visual effects supervisor and he's sort of the one guiding it on behalf of the director. So it just kind of depends on what the situation is. I have a, I have a pretty basic question off of that. Is yeah. it like uh, what part of the process do you get involved? Like, is it the whole way? Is it just in pre-production? Is it the whole way through production? And second part of that question would be like, what are the quickest timelines that you had to turn things around for somebody? Uh. Yes, uh, very good question. So, uh, so, so previs is uh, previsualization is what is done prior to going to actually shoot, and then uh, post viz is what happens after the footage has been shot. Where, uh, for example, going back to the Avengers, uh, for example, so they would they went out and they shot. All of their footage, uh, you know, all of the actors on sets, uh, partial sets, uh, blue screens, um, sometimes on wires, other times, uh, you know, in an actual city street, uh, there will be guys wearing, uh, you know, the motion capture suits that basically looks like a checkerboard pattern with a lot of dots all over it and then really expensive headgear with cameras and tracking markers on their faces and those guys will become the Hulk or uh, Ultron or something like that. 
And so then we get all that footage back. And then in order for them to, you know, see their scenes in the edit and really get a feel for is this working or not, we'll go in in post-viz, take all of that footage, add in the background, add in the set extensions, add in the Hulk uh, on top of the on top of Mark Ruffalo uh, and and then add in all the laser blasts and explosions and debris and stuff like that. Uh, And that is less of a, hey, we're kind of, you know, playing with clay and more, okay, we've we've got the elements already. It's more of a technical compositing sort of exercise. Uh, but then that footage then goes back to editorial. They edit it all. They drop it all into their edit, and then they can screen it for test audiences, uh, you know, investors, that sort of thing, and get an idea for the pacing of the movie. You know, what is working, what isn't, what do we have to go reshoot, uh, and then a lot of times, okay, well, what do we just re-edit in order to, you know, what uh, what different footage do we use uh, in order to, you know, make this one sort of beat work. And then in terms of actual, like, quick turnaround time, I think that uh, one of the shortest turnarounds uh, I did was on the uh, was on the movie that just came out this summer, which was The Dark Tower. So they had actually, they had already shot their movie, and in the course of test screenings and all that sort of thing, uh, they decided, okay, we're we're actually going to shoot a different ending for it, and uh, of course they did. Yes. <laughs> but they they came to that decision uh, with six months before the movie was going to release in theaters, and obviously, a final fight scene for a movie like that is going to have a lot of visual effects in it, and it's it's going to be kind of a big deal. And they were only able to get. Idris Elba for I think like three days, three very specific days in February, uh, because he's shooting a thousand movies. And so we had, I think three weeks to turn around a roughly five minute uh, final battle scene between him and Matthew McConaughey for that movie. And, and we worked right up until the night before they started shooting. So they were, we were sending them edits the whole way through so that they were able to build the sets and, you know, the, the, the stunt guys were able to, uh, you know, plan all the stunts for the scenes and stuff like that. And we were just making minor tweaks, uh, to camera angles and stuff like that. And some little visual effects bits right up until. And then, and then when something like that happens though, like what about the other projects that you guys are on? Is it just all like go on hold or like, or is it just one project at a time? Oh, uh, well actually our particular company, uh, we're lucky in that we're, we're sort of the top house in town. And, uh, due to that, we, we work on objectively probably half of the, don't be shy about it. So, uh, so we usually have, uh, I, I don't know the actual numbers, but, but I would guess, that we probably have about 10 to 15 movies in-house at any given time. And uh, some of those are projects that have a three-week turnaround or, or that's all that you know a, a smaller budget movie really needs or can afford. What budgets do you... Is the range usually? Uh, everything... I mean, everything under the, the sun, biggest. really. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> pretty much, it's, yeah. You know, in order to 
be able to afford previs at all, I think your movie has to be, you know, at least in the, you know, several million dollar range enough so that you can afford to drop. I, I, I can't even throw out prices because I'm an editor and don't know what they are, but, just make something uh, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's like $10 a billion dollars. I mean, if anybody uh-huh. wants to see like what the third floor as an example is, has worked on, they can look at their website or check out their credits on IMDb. But Absolutely. I feel like, yeah. I feel like the dark tower is very much on the smaller side for the stuff that I saw while I was there. I mean, that sure. movie is like a $60 million budget, I think. Something like and that. And then, you know, without, I mean, I can't go into what, like, we were working on when we were there together, but, like, some of those projects, I feel like we're probably going to be running in the $200 million range. Yeah, and that's that's a little more typical of the kinds of projects sure. that, that we work on, or at least that's that's probably about half of the projects that we work on. Sure. Yeah. And how many scenes typically in a movie like that are you guys doing previs for? Um, it, uh, I mean, it depends because sometimes a sequence can be three minutes long. Sometimes it can be 20 minutes long. Is it typically stuff that has a visual effects component or is it anything? Typically, if it's yeah. like a, if it's like an action sequence, is it, or is it usually a, there is something that has, that's going to be comped in or designed in 3d that's going to be placed in the shot. That's typically when you bring a previs team right. on. Yeah. It's, it's almost always for the big expensive action scenes where you've got, uh, you've got to have a lot of cameras running. Uh, you're going to have to be shooting a lot of elements. There's a lot of stunts, pyrotechnics, uh, and very complicated stuff. So, you know, whereas the bulk of every movie that you watch is scene work, it's people talking to one another. Uh, that's the sort of uh, it's it's almost kind of you can get storyboards for that that two D shit exactly <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> I guess something I found interesting which I think might help to actually segue into TechViz okay I'm not sure. I wasn't super familiar with because I didn't get to work on any of that when I was with you guys but when we get shots from the shot creators it would not only be like just the three D animation but there would be information printed on the shot such mm-hmm. as the lens the focal length, the speed the camera would be moving, the height it would be off the ground, all of this stuff, which to me, I didn't even expect. Like, I was clearly familiar with the concept of previs, but until I'd come come by to work with you guys, like, I'd never really been involved. Um, But that was astounding to me because I didn't even realize that you guys created shots in this way, like virtual cam, and then in this way where you essentially, like, build the world and you put a virtual camera in there and it's just, you know, you start recording stuff and it's amazing and shot creators are doing it that way. Um, I'm not sure of that because I, again, like I said, I'm not familiar with the tech visit all that much, but that information, is that part of like that tech viz route? And then when we, when we end up delivering to like client, is that the information they're taking to like set up their cameras? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so during the, the planning phase of for every single shot, the director is usually calling out like, uh, I feel like this is maybe more of a 70 millimeter lens than a 35. And so all of that is sort of baked into our 3d scene files so that when the shots get, you know, pumped out and go into the edit, all of that information is burned in, but even information that is is uh, beyond that, such as um, you know the the dimensions of the set or the dimensions of the street corner you're going to be shooting on, that sort of thing, that is all in the scene file as well. The scene is built with those dimensions in mind, so that 
you know exactly where you can be placing the camera. So specific. In exactly. And so if like if, for example, if you're going to be shooting in a train station, uh, like a, a very well-known tra- train station, like, you know, Grand Central Station or something like that. And you have a particular, you know, tracking shots where you're following two characters walking through. You need to know where exactly uh, that dolly track can run and where you're not going to be hitting a ticket booth or a pillar or something like that. Oh, yeah. And so all of that information is also figured out as well. Um, and then, so then bleeding into the TechViz question, yeah. TechViz specifically is, uh, is all of the information uh, that is boring about these shots, for example, if uh, you know, you've got... Uh, one one of the fun ones that uh, we edited a demo reel for recently uh, was the uh, the scene where in Game of Thrones uh, season five, I think, where spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> I know Game of Thrones people are really crazy. <laughs> Gotta watch Avengers. Turn, Gotta watch. Turn Game down the volume for a minute here. This is several seasons ago, but there's a scene where uh, Danny and her friends are in the middle of an arena. They're being attacked by the sons of the harpy, and Drogon, the dragon, flies down. Yes. And rescues her, uh, and then breathes fire on all of these guys, and like you have all of these, you know, stunt guys who get lit up, uh, and the way that they did that uh, in order to stay away from having to do any CG fire that might have looked kind of fake or something mm-hmm. like that, they mounted a flamethrower onto a techno crane instead of a camera, and. Uh, and program that techno crane with movements that matched the movements of the dragon that we had put in the scene. We basically we took the dragon's wow. the dragon's head movements, converted that information in Maya, which is the 3D software that we use, and and then fed that movement information into the techno dolly. So that the dolly's head with the flamethrower on it would move in exactly the same way that Drogon's head moved in our previous shots. Mm. And then it would shoot the napalm out in just the perfect way so that it so that when the visual effects artist went in and put the actual CG dragon on, he would line up perfectly. And so the tech viz was, I mean, if you can imagine, uh you know, basically shot after shot after shot of top view, side view, you know, where the dolly track goes, the animation of the the actual techno dolly with a superimposed wireframe of the dragon on top of it. That's that's what TechViz is, and that's stuff that can go to the camera department so that they can see, okay, here are the here are the actual specifics. It's all data of all how exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. That's, in, that's incredible, dude. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm living in the future. Do you guys yeah. do that? And have you done that for any of your movies? No, we probably will. We'll probably never work together unless Great. you do us a huge favor. <laughs> <laughs> well, never say never. I mean, it's uh, you guys are probably only just a year or two away from walking in the door there. So, how, how, how did you how did you get started? What was your path to this? Well, uh, I mean, uh, we can go all the way back to childhood, but uh, but probably the interesting part is that uh, when I came out here. Uh, with a uh, you know a degree from film school uh, and absolutely no contacts, I schlepped a resume around for three months and got no bites, and so joined a temp agency in town that allowed or that that only 
sends people out for industry-related jobs, basically answering phones and... Which one? Like or, Fried, or Friedman? Or? It was Friedman, actually. Yeah, yeah it was Friedman. Yeah. Uh, and, Dropped the resume uh, off the yeah. other day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. I can't say enough great stuff about them. Uh, they, they are the ones who got me into the industry. Um, but anyway, so I, yeah, I dropped off my resume there and they brought me in and they said, we see that you've got some editing experience from film school and just that I listed the software that I knew how to use. And so they sent me to a visual effects company called Cinesite, which doesn't exist anymore, but used to be over on, um, Highland and, uh, and Santa Monica, Las Palmas, um, and I walked in the door there, and uh, that was my very first taste of the film industry. And all of the people there were super cool. The work was exciting. They were working on Air Force One, I think, at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, a uh, lesser-known Christian Slater movie called Hard Rain. Lesser-known? Lesser-known? What is that? Yeah, Hard Rain fans What here. is that? <laughs> Um, and, uh, I just thought it was absolutely cool. And I mean, I was just driving film around town and Wait, you cleaning out the microwave. Film? Yes. Actual literal film back Shit, in those days. Right, it was yeah. sort of, sort of the end of the film, uh, stage of visual effects in the industry. Right. I basically, um, I got hired on there out through that because the chief engineer saw that I, had some tape deck experience back when that was actually a thing. And uh, so... A great tape deck experience. <laughs> <laughs> what what tape kind of tapes were you working with? Uh, three-quarter inch. Okay. Uh, I mean, three-quarter inch in college, and then, you know... Sure, as I mean, as... I, I did one three-quarter inch project as a professional. That's about as old as, like, all right. stuff gets All right, so you got a little taste of a it before it all went away. tape, and then a bunch of digibeta, <laughs> and then everything else is quick times. I, I don't miss it in the slightest. Oh, man, I literally had to clean the, the tape deck heads to use. Oh, yeah. We had to get yeah, the yeah. engineer in there. It was a whole thing. He thought I was an idiot, and I was like... I, I don't even I didn't know what this was till before today. I don't think I'm stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's one of the best pieces of advice that I got uh, was after Runner, I got bumped up to just tape deck op, and I was sitting in the machine room there at Cinesite, just slinging tapes around. And the tape engineer slinger. that's a good nickname for you. <laughs> the engineer came in and uh, he was he was like, I, I, I want you to know that. This is not a career you should pursue. Because <laughs> there are sexier <laughs> things out there for you, kid. <laughs> well, and just he, he said quite candidly, this is going away. Like he was able to foresee down the future a couple of years sure. that tape was going to become obsolete. And that was a really good, I mean, that was a really good warning. And uh, so then in, as far as like how I became an editor was that uh, we had an editor who was operating the Avid, and then one of our guys went uh, to NAB one year and, and saw this brand new nonlinear editing system called the Discrete Edit, which no one remembers at all. Please don't feel bad for never having heard of this. It only existed for two years, uh, but because it was a discrete product, it had some visual effects capabilities, and he was like, oh my God, we need this. Because this is because we can do visual effects in an editing software that that Avid could never make look right. Sure. So they dropped the money on it. They shipped it out. The tech came in, set it all up in a room, and then it just sat there. And then 
after a couple weeks of it just sitting there, somebody said, okay, well, we should really train some people on how to use this, Mm -hmm. right? And so they ordered a class for five people, and they got three of the film editors in there, the avid editor, and then me, the tape op, just so that I could know how to (laughs) patch it on the router. (laughs) And uh, we sat there for two days and learned how to use the system, and then uh, all four of the other guys were like, well, I'm never touching this thing again. (laughs) And they all walked away from it, and so I just spent my free time going in there and playing with it over the next month or so. And then at a certain point, somebody in accounting was looking at you know a line item thing, and they were like, what's this editing system that we have sitting here not being used for any shows? I mean, we paid the money for it and so everybody was like all right well let's stick it in an editing bay and promote somebody to use it who here knows how to use it oh sean you're the only one here who knows how to use this so congratulations you're an editor all over it man it's (laughs) yours exactly so the key to success in this industry (laughs) is learning software that will soon be obsolete that also bothers like legacy workers That's actually very true. Great. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. So pretty much at that moment, I was a visual effects editor okay. uh, in uh, a vendor side visual effects editor. Um, I think my first credit was on a movie called Wonder Boys, uh, which was nice. Pittsburgh. Curtis Hansen movie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace. Shot at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, w- I wish I could say I had a lot to do with that film, but it was like twelve shots or something like that. Uh, you and can then... still say you had a lot to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Chad is really proud of your work on that film, yeah. though. So, oh, I love that movie. Right. Well, it was so great. Good. It was a great movie. But yeah, so then um, uh, that particular platform that I was on uh, discontinued about a year after, and uh, we held on to it for about another two years, and then got rid of it and got in a second Avid, and then uh, that was pretty much it. And I was a visual effects editor bouncing around town for uh, to a couple different companies for about like- 16, 17 years. And then uh, the last company that I worked for uh, closed its doors, and I basically uh, decided to become a uh, gentleman of leisure for uh, about four months. And uh, sounds like a great job. It was absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend it to <laughs> anyone who gets laid off from a job that they've been at for a long time. And then was like, well, I should probably start looking for work. And then about a month later, I was like, okay, I really need to start looking for work. <laughs> and so I, you know, just started poking around on the, uh, you know, two pop forums, I think, at the time, just to see what, what jobs were being advertised for visual effects editors. And uh, came across an ad for the third floor, uh, was looking for a an assistant editor. And I had, I mean, working in visual effects, I'd seen third floors work for, you know, years and years and years and had edited a bunch of previs just in the course of being a visual effects editor, Uh, just because, uh, you know, when you're working for a visual effects company, a lot of times in order to sort of woo a production into giving the facility a bunch of work, work. a lot of time you'll say, hey, you know, for for smaller productions uh, or even for, you know, movies that are pitches that directors are doing, you'll say, hey, we'll we'll previs a scene here in house and, you know, if you land the movie, then we'll, you know, the 
understanding is you bring the bulk of the right, visual sure, effects yeah. work in here and we get that uh, money. So I had, I had cut a bunch of previs and uh, I was like, well, okay, I'll just, I'll just build a website real quick and throw some of that up there uh, and, and then, you know, yeah. hit reply to this and send in my resume. Uh, but I also, I had a friend from Cinesite back in the day who had been a, a data wrangler back when I knew him and he was already a previs supervisor at the oh, third floor by that right. time, Todd Constantine. Oh, okay. Um, oh, you guys go way back. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, a previs supervisor is essentially like the, um, basically a department head for previs. So there's like the director and then there's the visual effects supervisor uh, who handles all the visual effects on the movie on behalf of the director and the previs supervisor handles sort of directs all of the previs on behalf of the director when the director is not there. It's sort of the mouthpiece between the two. So anyway, I just told Todd, I was like, hey, I'm putting in a resume over there. If you could mention that to whomever, I don't know. I didn't even know that they did their own editing at third floor. I just assumed that, you know, it was... I've heard that that's not always the norm, correct? It's not. It's not. Um, A lot of times... Previs gets if there's not a previs house that has been hired to work on a movie, uh, and there are a number of productions that will uh, go with the visual effects vendor and say, "Hey, can you guys do the previs?" Or the visual effects vendor will be like, "Hey, we'll do all the previs for you for cheap if you give us all the big, you know, photo real high end work on the sure. movie." Um, and that stuff is usually edited by either a visual effects editor in the cutting room of the film. Or the vendor side visual effects editor who's working on that facility that's doing sure. the previs. We should also probably mention, just in case anyone is confused, the vendor <laughs> side, the vendor side in like the film workflow is the the vendor would be the the company that's making assets for a film, whereas exactly. non-vendor side would be considered like the creative from like the studio, right? Is that maybe a clear way to say it? Yeah. So I mean, probably the easiest way to clarify is that a vendor is a company that is hired by the film in order to do work on it. So ILM, digital domain, uh, those are the big, uh, you know, sort of household names of visual effects companies that are considered vendors. Uh, Whereas, you know, Disney or Pixar or legendary or spyglass those are production companies or studios that are considered the clients that then hire the vendors in order to do the work great awesome uh yeah so anyway so i got uh, so i sent in my resume and a todd i guess told somebody hey i got a friend who's you know who i i know is a good editor and or actually I have no idea what he told them. Sure, he yeah. Said, <laughs> yeah. Todd went in and was yeah, like, was, this Sean guy, don't <laughs> hire him. And, and everyone at third floor hates Todd. So they're like, we got to get this guy. Exactly. Seen him sling tape. Exactly. Need somebody manning the digibated deck here. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, they called me back and they were like, Hey, you submitted for the assistant, uh, position, but we actually need an editor right now. And it looks like you're actually an editor. Can you come in and do that today? Oh, and I was right. like, no, no, I think I'd rather I'm be a man of leisure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man of leisure, damn it. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that was sort of how that happened. And I've been there for three and a half years now. And Great. it's it compared to visual effects editing, because uh, they're sort of two totally different disciplines. And I'm sorry if this is boring for absolutely everybody, but uh, it's not boring for us. Okay, Uh, so in trying to make this as exciting as possible, uh, you've got your actual picture editor who is the big editor on the movie who edits the movie. And then there are a small army of assistants 
that then help to support that picture editor. And then a visual effects editor is an editor in that small army that, whose job is specifically just to look out for the visual effects who, that are coming in from the visual effects vendors. And so every single day as a visual effects editor, you get a delivery of shots from, depending on how large the movie is, from one vendor to you know 12 to 20 vendors. Mm-hmm. And it's your job to go into the editor's cut and drop in all of the visual effects shots and update that cut so that the next time the editor hits play, all of the latest visual effects shots are in it. Uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff that goes along with that, but that's kind of the gist of it. Um, it's It sounds really nice to those of us who still work in the indie realm. <laughs> Just give it to Tom, he'll take care of it, whatever it is. Even if it's a personal problem, Tom will take care of it. That's I, I would imagine that's true. You probably are doing the work of five different types of editors yeah, on I, any well, given project. I, I technically post supervise most projects. I'm oh, editing. so you're you're even doing jobs that are not editor. Uh, jobs. Yeah, so I'll go. I mean, I'll, I'll start depending on how small it is. I'll I'll start at the the DIT level, and then, oh wow, then I'll go up to the assisting level, and then I'll be editing, and then I'll be VFX editing, and I'll handle all the deliveries, including the vendors. And then if I if I have like officially negotiated the post supervisor position, then I'm gonna be going into the vendor bids as well to find out where we're gonna be working. And I'm gonna be like, I don't get to negotiate the deals, but I get to tell my producers when we're getting ripped off or not. Um, That's excellent. We should have well, you on the podcast, Tom. We should, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting cat. Yeah, no, it's really cool because tell. because when you do all of those jobs in independent <laughs> film. You end up making as much money as a post-production assistant on any other project. Wait, you make money in independent films? Yeah, tell us about that, dude. Not on our. I'll teach you guys a few lessons. <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, but yeah, no, it just depends on the project. But yeah, I mean, I, to be fair, the third floor has now been like the biggest budgeted projects I've been a part of. I mean, before that, it was in the trailer house world. But, right. Uh, we talked about that a bit, but right, uh, right. that was very like segmented. That I had a very specific job, and we had these like small teams and all that kind of stuff. But you know, you're talking about getting that warning earlier about like don't get in, don't go down this path. Right. Right. What do you see moving forward? Like, is there a warning you'd give anybody, or like where do you see it going? Oh, that's a real good question. That's a good question. Oh wow! Um, Thanks, guys. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. No, that's. Right. Uh, <laughs> so that's a wrap. Got an, off mic, <laughs> got an off mic fist bump from Anselm for that question. <laughs> uh, that that is excellent. I mean, don't make movies. As far <laughs> do not get involved with the bit, in the business. Well, it's interesting <laughs> that you say that because there, like, I remember ten years ago with the whole, you know, as as the internet was becoming more and more of a household thing, and YouTube was was a thing, and the you know the world was starting to go digital. There was a lot of talk, mostly just headlines, about, uh, you know, is film dead? Why are people going to go to the theaters now that you can get an HD television in your house that is, you know, comparable to the experience of watching a movie in the theaters? Uh, When we went from standard def to HD, we went from a little square to a nice letterbox rectangle and Criterion Collection DVDs with all the, you know, special features and great, you know, surround sound and and home theaters totally changed. And so there was like this, oh, well, you know, why would people go to see the movies anymore? And they still go to see the movies because the the movies are a completely different experience than sitting at home watching your television. The movies are a way for kids to go somewhere where they're allowed to be to get away from their parents and their homes to go have fun together 
Uh, and it's a place where you can go and sit with an audience of a whole bunch of other people and enjoy something and laugh as a group as opposed to sitting alone. So movies are definitely, I mean, as far as I can see into the future, despite the doom and gloom recently of like, oh, well, box office numbers are slightly down this year. Movies are going to continue to be a thing uh, for a long time into the future, movie theaters especially. The interesting thing to me right now is that due to the fact that streaming services are rising very high into the light, we're going to start moving into a world that is no longer determined by uh, length of time or duration of yeah. a story. Ooh. Whereas beforehand, uh, a movie was an hour and a half to two hours because that's roughly how long you could keep an audience sitting in their chairs without them having to go to the bathroom as long as they could comfortably sit in one place uh, and also short enough so that you could get X number of screenings in during a day in order to make a certain amount of money. Uh, and television a, has always been a vehicle for commercials, so it's done in half-hour blocks and hour blocks with X number of minutes being devoted to commercials. Like, these, these particular uh, delivery methods determined a length of time that storytelling was sort of shoved into. But now, but, with streaming, uh, with Netflix and Hulu, and, and uh, I mean, I saw a billboard for an AT&T original uh, just dude, last week. the audience network. So, <laughs> um, everybody is, is getting into this Fuck game, me. and it's not necessary for you to have any particular uh, length. And oh, the only true. reason why, you know, a Netflix show uh, is, is in half-hour episodes or hour episodes is because that's still what we're used to, but it doesn't need to be that way anymore. So, uh, I mean, as, as far, far as what your question was, is like what to look out for, what's coming, what will dissolve away. What I see is the, that the actual storytelling medium itself is in this amazing new Wild Wild West area where sort of all of the rules have already become fluid. It's just that we as a society have not realized it yet. And, I mean, there is absolutely nothing to say that, uh, like, for example, I mean, this was many years ago, but Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog yeah. was not any particular genre. Uh, it was, uh, not, uh, was not programmed uh, for any particular audience or network. It was four 15-minute episodes that just ran on the internet with no advertising or anything like that. And it was amazing. Outside of the fact that it had immediately garnered this huge cult following and was extremely popular, it was an absolute experiment right. down to its very you know genetic code. And a 15-minute format of four episodes with songs in it that was sort of like a weird supervillain love story is something that you wouldn't see in any of the normal, you know, sort of uh, traditional delivery systems. And I'm actually kind of shocked that we haven't been seeing more of that. But there is a, there is a certain, certain new cast of uh, creators who I think are going to be coming up out of YouTube and just the internet in general who are who are sort of you know vanguarding their way to something that we'll be seeing soon based on 
you know, oh, I make videos about, you know, the Skyrim mythology that are, you know, like seven to 10 minutes long. And that is going to eventually inform something that we're seeing three years from now. But the thing that amazes me is that the established filmmakers and television makers and stuff like that aren't doing this yet. Like, they're still, you know, very much, uh, I guess, too concerned about where the next project is going to come from or, you know, where the, the, the payday is in order to keep paying off the house payments and that sort of thing, uh, or are afraid to try and do something that's, uh, you know, risky or experimental, or maybe their, you know, their agents, managers are like, oh God, don't waste your time on this crazy idea. But like, I really think that there's some, some incredible storytelling that can be done. That's going to break some new boundaries. That's going to establish some new, uh, basically open up some windows for people to see how storytelling can be different now. Uh, and I think uh, that all it's going to take is for, some people to just start experimenting with it, quite frankly. Yeah. But I also understand it's hard to raise money to do that. So, but um, you don't need as much now. I mean, that's like one of yeah. the things that this whole podcast is about is like how you can go out and do stuff now without a lot of money, you know? And yeah, you might not get a, you know, it might not be in a network and you know, all that kind of stuff, but people will see it now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have like a, you know, a Vine star, or YouTube star who's, Become wildly more. So I have a quick question about just yep. specifically what you do. We were talking a little bit about teams and the number of people that work at you know the company that you that you are an editor at. Right, right. How what? involved are you with the actual creation of the effects work, or is that something that someone else is doing, and then you're, you're being you're delivered being... that work and cutting it together? Like, where does your job start, and where does it stop in terms of you know what you sit down to do every day? Inside um, of the edit bay is the answer yeah. to both those questions. No, it's, yeah. it's a very good question. Uh, it's actually uh, surprisingly very creative. I mean, I guess maybe not surprising. What I should say is, having come from a visual effects editor background where you are, your whole world is chasing frame numbers and just making sure that everything fits and that you're keeping track of a database and stuff like that. You're lucky on a day when somebody's like, you know, we shot a scene in this car with two people talking uh, against blue screen, and here's an hour's worth of road footage. Pick out the best segments to go behind the blue screen, and then that's what will go in the movie. Like, that's that's your fun, creative thing that you get to do on the picture. Whereas in Previs editorial, you sit down as the editor with the Previs supervisor and the director a lot of times, and you're cutting together their vision in the room. And you get to say, you know, it would be really great if I had a close-up I could cut to here to see this character's expression of, of what's going on. And they'll either go oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Or, uh, no, I don't really care to see what that person is thinking right now. Or maybe we'll do that later or something like that. But but you, you're getting to say, like, okay, uh, you know, if if people, you know, if the, if the director and the supervisor are like, okay, well, this this particular couple of shots isn't necessarily working out, you know, what's, what's a better way of doing this? 
because you're sitting there in the rooms, you know, part of the creative session, you can say, well, you know, is there any way that we could take some of the, these three shots and merge them together as one and have the camera follow in? And if we if we bring the camera in with the actors and we get it into this final position, then that will set us up for the rest of the scene that we already have here. And so there's there's a lot that, that you get to suggest and add. And I mean, everything down to, you know, picking the, the temp soundtracks that go in and the sound effects that the robot makes and, uh, and all that kind of right. thing. Right. So you're so, just gathering all those assets just like, just like a, a picture editor like would do. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You ever get in a fight with a picture editor? Never once. <laughs> <laughs> Never once. But it's, I mean, but it is sort of like uh, somebody came to you and said, hey, we want you to edit uh, all of uh, the big blockbuster movies that are coming out this year, but we only want you to edit the fun parts. <laughs> And that's really Bonus. what it's like. Yeah. So have you ever done, have you done any picture editing outside of previous work? Like, is that a desire that you have to like cut narrative yeah. feature or not in the slightest? <laughs> and there was uh, a point uh, at uh, which I did, uh, you know, kind of have to ask myself that is like, you know, where, where, where do you want to end up? And I, I was a client side, uh, cutting room side, visual effects editor on, uh, a movie called the book of Eli, which, uh, that's was, uh, a fabulous movie. It was a great experience. Watching the Hughes brothers work was fantastic. The picture editor on that was a woman named Cindy Mallow who could not have been nicer and she's an excellent editor. But watching the dance that she had to do not only as technically the editor who's shaping the movie but also having to please two directors, an executive producer who's starring in the movie, uh, in you know the two main producers of the movie uh, from the production company uh, and having to incorporate everything that they needed the movie to be together into one movie, oh. I just was like, wow, that is not anything I'm interested in That's doing about as at far all. from being a man of leisure as you can And and um, really what it comes down to is that the life of a of a picture editor is kind of an insular lonely one in a lot of ways because you are in your whole role on the movie is mostly seeing about if you're lucky eight people total during any given day right and that goes on for potentially a year and a half uh whereas i kind of realized about myself i i'm a social person i like being with a lot of people i like you know, uh, I, I like working on multiple projects a year and seeing different footage, having different genres of movies in front of me. And just vendor side is where I get all of that. Like I walk into work every day and I'm working with uh, a, a company of 150 people who are all super cool. And I get to, you know, see every day and, you know, joke around with them, have fun, work hard. And I mean, I think think I work on probably maybe eight movies a year in previs. Sometimes, you know, yeah. one or two of those are commercials or video game cinematics or theme park rides or something like that. But yeah, that's incredible, though. I mean, whereas a picture editor would maybe do, you know, one of those every few years, you mm -hmm. get to work on eight in a year. That's that's yeah. really that's fun. It's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun.
All right, guys, that was Sean Rourke. Uh, loved having him come by. I always look forward to opportunities where I get to work with Sean. Uh, he's just sort of a fantastic person to hang out with. You should definitely make sure to be on the lookout for his name in the end credits of any of the big blockbusters you're watching uh, this summer or this coming fall. Uh, he just He's so prolific, and, and I'm sure that he'll love getting some shout-outs from some fans. You should also be on the lookout. We're going to have a new episode coming in the near future, we talked with our friends in The Gifted, which is a music collective. Uh, they do all kinds of like track production, but they also uh, do film scoring. So they have a really cool career, uh, sort of even unique right now. Uh, and our interview with them went really well. And make sure to subscribe to The Crawl on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you want to hit us up on social media, it's at The Crawl Podcast on Twitter or Hi Radio Silence if you want to hit up Radio Silence directly. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Let's see it. With radio silence.